Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shadow of your wing. Selah. Those are the first four verses of Psalm 61, which along with Psalm 62 are the psalms appointed for today, Tuesday, July the 27th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We're continuing our study in the life of David in 2 Samuel um, 3, 6 to 21, the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 16, verses 6 to 15, and in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 30 to 46. And so <clears throat> we're seeing today, how do, what do we do when we recognize the truth, and how do we react to truth? And, and we see in... Second Samuel, if you remember uh, yesterday, what we saw was Abner, who was the head of the army of Saul, made Ishbosheth, um, Saul's son, the king over all of Israel. David is over Judah, and and Ishbosheth would was then the king over everything else that was Israel, all the other tribes, all eleven of them. <laughs> and so now, Abner, Abner is a kingmaker. I don't exactly understand why he's so powerful, but he clearly has all the power himself. And Ishbosheth was just somebody he set up as king uh, over all of this. And you'll see in a minute why I say that, because what happens is is that that Saul, who is dead, had a concubine, and her name was Rizpah, and Ishbosheth accused Abner of going into her, you know, knowing her, let's say. And Abner is furious. About this, he said, "Am I a dog's head of Judah, which is the tribe that David's over?" And David's used similar kinds of language for himself. I'm a, I'm a flea-bitten dog. Um, to this day, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet, you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God, do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and Judah, from Dan to Beersheba, which was the length and breadth of the land. And Ishbosheth couldn't answer Abner because he feared him. So he knew that he was not truly the power in Israel, that Abner had all the power. And so what happens next is Abner sends messengers to David. And says, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And David's response is, Great, sounds good to me. But before I see you, you've got to bring me Michal, my, um, Saul's daughter, who is my wife, who is Saul, whom Saul had given to another at the same time. So David sent messengers also to Ishbosheth. Saul's son saying, Give me my wife Michal, for whom I paid the, paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Remember, they, they refer to them always as those uncircumcised Philistines. And so David killed them and um, handed their foreskins to Saul as the bride price for his daughter Michal. And so they did. Ishbosheth sent and had the wife, had Michal taken from her husband. But the husband went with her because he loved her, apparently. And Abner finally told him, go, return. And the man went back. And so then Abner went and spoke with the elders of Israel. 
and says, For some time past you've been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistine, from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin. Benjamin is Saul's tribe. And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. In other words, he brought the kingship of everything to David, including the tribe of Benjamin, which would have been a critical thing to, to, to bring about unity. And the, the, the difficult thing would be to bring Benjamin, that tribe, into this coalition that, that is now willing to accept David and set him up as king over all of Israel. And so he came with 20, Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, where David was living. And David made a, fat, a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I'll arise and will gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. And David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. So, so Abner is going to be again the kingmaker. He made Ishbosheth the king, and now he's ready to make David the king. He is the one who went to these people. He, he's the one that all those tribes respected. And, and they, they wanted Abner to do exactly as he promised here, and that was to go and raise up David to be the king. Now you can see from David's perspective why that might be a little troublesome. And it might be a little troublesome because who is the real power? I'm not, David's not going to be Ishbosheth. That's the bottom line is there's no chance he's going to be Ishbosheth. He's going to be he's not going to be the weak sort of figurehead king uh, who really is subservient in any way to Abner. And so you can see here why there might be some problems down the line. It's relatively easy to see that. Um, and, and David has a commander over his army as well. And we're going to see more about that in a little bit as we move further into this thing. But But when Abner sees... Not so much that David was the one who should be the king, but he's mad at Ishbosheth is the reason that he does this, <clears throat> um, and and so it's it's a matter of can we what are we seeing here? Can, can we see beyond the the reality and beyond the um, the verbiage that we see, and can we see Abner making a power play here and, and trying to set himself up as as a kingmaker? And it's um, there's a seeds of his own destruction, I think, in, in all this, these plays that he's making here. <clears throat> in the gospel uh, reading today, Jesus had sent out the apostles, remember, to go out and heal and proclaim. And, and so they come back, and, and they're excited about what has happened in their journey. And then he says, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. You know, you've been on this missionary journey, and let's go away. Let's go away where nobody else is. Let's go out to a quiet place where we can just, where you guys can rest and, and sort of prepare for the next leg of the journey. But, but the problem was is that many were still coming and going, and they, the dis disciples, had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. But many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He began to teach them many things. This idea of the being like sheep without a shepherd refers back to multiple prophecies in the in the Old Testament that had to do with the the pathetic um, bad shepherds of Israel at the time when God would come and shepherd His people Himself. And so Jesus begins to teach them many things in that place, and then it gets late. 
and he, and they come to him and say, hey, this is a desolate place. There's nothing around here, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Well, remember that they weren't. They were told to take nothing on this journey and to rely on the hospitality of others. And so they said, "Where are we going to get two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them?" He said, "How many loaves do you have? Go and see." And they found out, and they said, five and two fish." And he commanded them all to sit down in groups in the green grass. It's, it's interesting that that here and in John six both, it, we're told there was grass in that place, um, and that here we're told that it's the green grass. And so they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And then he divided the two fish among them all and they all ate and were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full, each one for each disciple, of broken pieces of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Pretty amazing. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. I've read that there was a, set of commentaries that I that I started looking at way back when, when I was first sort of um, coming back to the Lord and, and also sort of coming to a place where, where I really wanted to study and know more. And so I got some commentaries by getting William Barclay. And they were really popular commentaries. At the time, a little, um, all, only New Testament commentaries, but, but he wrote, wrote them for all the Gospels, at least. And I'm not sure if it was all the um, epistles as well, but... But as I began to read the commentaries, it, it, I began to be disillusioned <laughs> a little bit by Barclay because Barclay didn't believe in the miraculous. And so what he believed happened here was is that Jesus, uh, and this is this it sort of infects liberal theology that, that, that denies anything that smacks of the supernatural. And so the, Barclay denied this completely. What he said was is that, no, they all had food with them. And when Jesus brought this, the, these five loaves and two fish out, it inspired them to share with one another. And so no, no, there was a lot more than um, five loaves and two fish. Well, the problem is, is that, that that's not even a story worth telling. And certainly it's not a story worth telling in this way to, to point to a miraculous feeding. It, it, and, and then for Barclay to question it later is to say that, that I just don't believe the text. I don't have much respect for the text or the writers of the text. And so I, I, there's, a, there's a reason that these stories are there. And it's not um, because they looked and said, well, that was really cool. Everybody shared there. No, they're recorded specifically because they were miracles. And so when we discount the miraculous in that way, especially stuff that's in the scriptures, then then we lose sight of who Jesus really was. It's, do, do we not believe that Jesus was capable of doing anything? And that's the reality. And, and we've got to, we're not recognizing the true Jesus whenever we uh, discount those miracles like that. And I've seen miracles, you know, I've experienced them personally. I've seen God do things that, that only he could do. Um, and so it's, it, it's not a common thing, and that's the reason the story's there. If it, had, if it had been a common occurrence, if these people had just shared with one another, then, then why bother even telling that story? Unless you tell the whole story. But the, the, it seems like the one that's in John 6. It seems like it's the same feeding miracle. And, and the interesting thing in John 6 is, is that after this, they wanted to make him king. Well, you know, my son Pelham loved Barney the dinosaur when he was a kid, but 
I don't think anybody wanted to make Barney king because he taught him how to share. You know, there's more that happened and more that went on than that. And so after this feeding, Jesus sends the disciples on by boat and tells them to go on over to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And then he goes up on the mountain to pray. So Jesus always felt this need to be alone with the Father and to have communion with him alone, especially after he had done these kinds of things. That, that there was a need to, to be separate from, from that. And, and it's not that he was worn out or whatever. It's just that, that it's easy to get caught up in the acclaim of the moment and, and lose sight of what's actually going on. And that's the temptation for David now as he's getting ready to be made king over all of Israel. And it's the temptation for Jesus always would be that, that to get caught up in the moment and stay in the moment and do what the crowds want you to do rather than to pay attention and see all the the things that are actually going on and to see what the Father actually wants you to do. And so in this Acts lesson, what we've got is is exactly that issue where where Paul says some odd things. Well, I mean, Paul's not saying them, obviously, but um, Luke, the writer, is. He says that they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So somehow or another, they knew that they were not supposed to go to Asia uh, Minor and speak and, and preach the word of God, which seems really odd, but they prevented from doing that and then they they had come up to Mysia and they attempted to go into Bithynia but the spirit of Jesus did not allow that either and so they're they're sensitive to the spirit and and where the spirit leads them and and it's important for us always to remain in prayer for that reason because we want to go only to the places that God sends us rather than than where it seems right to go and I, I had an opportunity years ago to go to a church that was well established and um, had been around a very long time, and the the leaders of that church wanted me to be there. The, the The retiring priest wanted me to be there. A bishop wanted me to be there, and they all pressured me to do this. But but the Lord was telling me, no, I'm not calling you to that place or to that ministry. And people were disappointed that I that I didn't go. But but I knew in my spirit that that's not where God wanted me to go. He wanted me to come to Asheville, and so we did. Um, and so I know what this is like to say, you know, because my spirit would have wanted to do that because it was, it was a much easier kind of a thing rather than planting a church. I could go to an established church that, that could, you know, pay me a real salary and all that kind of stuff. So it was, it, it's, it's exactly the same thing. And I, and I understand what it is when God just says no, period, end of sentence. And so then Paul gets a vision in the night, a man of Macedonia standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, listen to this, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So Luke now becomes part of the action. Luke's part of the retinue that's following Paul right there. That's that's exactly where it begins, is as Paul gets this vision of a man in Macedonia calling him to go there. And what's odd is they go and they get to Philippi um, and they remained in the city some days. And on the Sabbath, there was no Jewish synagogue there is what, we're, what, we're, uh, what you understand from the rest of this. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, the place of prayer would indicate that there's not a synagogue there. And, and the, the absence of a synagogue would tend to, to mean there's a very small Jewish presence there. Because where there are ten Jewish men, you have a minyan, which is a congregation. 
and it takes 10 Jewish men to form the minyan, which then allows you to, to have a synagogue, according to Jewish law. Um, you have to have 10 men, because otherwise the place could be like Sodom and Gomorrah, and God could be prepared to destroy it, so you don't start a synagogue in a place where there's a, a lack of a quorum, let's say. And so one of the women there that hears them is Lydia from the city of Thyatira, and she's a, a seller of purple goods and a worshiper of God. Now, that would make her a very wealthy woman. Because purple was a very expensive dye to produce. It, it required this bizarre little process of, of taking this uh, shell of a snail called a murex and breaking open the shell, taking the murex out, going into a specific gland there that then you processed. And, and, and as you brought it that, that, um, the, stu the stuff from the gland out, then it changed through multiple iterations and it finally became purple. But it took about 10,000 of these to make a small vial of uh, purple. And so it's, it's a very dear and expensive thing because it's also a very time-consuming process. Lydia would have been a very wealthy woman. And so the, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged them to stay with them in the same way that, that Jesus, when he sent out the disciples, said, go and stay in a place and stay with a particular person as long as you're in a place. And so here we're seeing that in Thyatira. And so it, it's, it's, it's trickier ground here in, in, I'm sorry, not in Thyatira, in Philippi. When, when you see this here in Philippi, it's going to be trickier ground. It's going to be harder ground because nothing's been plowed. You don't have a bunch of Jewish people who are prepared to hear that the Messiah has come because these people are not looking for a Messiah. They're pri it's primarily a Gentile place. And so now you started a church with a bunch of women, and, and that's an iffy proposition. And yet God showed this woman that these were genuine servants of God. And so she believes, and now a beachhead is established in this place. But it's only because Paul was sensitive to the Spirit and saw and heard, and that because Lydia was sensitive to the Spirit, and she saw and she heard. And it's always a requirement for us to, to be still before the Lord, to listen to Him, not to listen to all the other things that are being said, but to hear His voice in the midst of everything else that, that's going on around us.